We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And don't forget the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. There you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good, Good morning, to see you Scott. Uh, your financial future will take care of itself, won't it? Uh, we might have heard something like that before, but yeah, it probably won't take care of itself. Unless, you know, th- this kind of the old days where you had those defined benefit plans. Right. Um, you had your employer, and they took care of your, themselves. They took mm-hmm. care of the employees. That's not quite the case anymore. And there's still lots of things you should have been doing other than simply um, look, your employer. And so you really got to go through this checklist. And the one I'm looking at right now, there's this 10-point uh, checklist. And number one. It says, am I satisfied with my current financial situation? And the answers are really yes, no, or not sure. And not sure is actually a good answer in this case, because you may not know. Like, wh- and quite often is it, would you know? Like, sometimes actually, it's kind of scary when the, I get the answer, yes, I'm very satisfied with my financial situation. But sometimes what I find is they're satisfied because they know what they know, mm-hmm. but they don't know what they don't know, mm-hmm. meaning oh boy, I, di- I didn't know I should have had my mortgage insured or disability coverage it, it needs to be um, uh, something I should be talking about. Mm-hmm. But you didn't know to, to ask those questions. Mm-hmm. So yes scares me. Not sure is a very good answer. And no is actually quite common because there's usually some improvement that could be done to a situation. Or, and I don't know about you, Andy. I find, I don't know, maybe once or twice a year, somebody's perfect. <laughs> well, I, I just literally had a, a call this week um, from good friends of ours that uh, that are, he's, he's getting ready to retire. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I've been working with this other company for, for years now, and it's been, uh, uh, but in the back of our minds, we're just thinking, you know, I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. That's exactly mm, yeah. what he said on the phone. Mm. And uh, so, you know, as I'm thinking about retirement, you know, what, what, you've been doing this for years. Can you just sort of point me at some, some high level things I should be just thinking about that I may not have thought about. Mm-hmm. And just even, you know, the, the big questions around when to take Canada pension plan and, and factoring that in, um, how to minimize tax on your investments, income splitting and, and the income splitting rules that were sort of fuzzy in his mind. Uh, do, do we still need insurance? And what about health and medical coverage? So mm-hmm. there's always a whole bunch of little things and all the way along, oh yeah, oh yeah, I should yes. think about that or find out about that. And, and so th- this is where, yeah, in answering the question is probably not sure is a is for most people a good answer. I think it's a great answer. And again, no different than you say you go to a physician or a doctor and you may go there and say, well, your bl- blood pressure is a little high. Okay, so that's bad. I understand that. But oh, what about that mole on your back? Well, I didn't notice that. Oh, it turns out mm. that maybe you should have checked that, but you didn't know that you didn't know. And that's kind of what happens with us when we're seeing a, a client situation. You go through thinking that, okay, we're just going to really looking at this situation. Next thing, it's like Pandora's box. There's a whole lot of other things, with other questions that come out and it says, wow, we really need to worry about other things, not simply that one area. And it's because they didn't know to ask that question. Mm-hmm. So these are the type of things that come out during a normal financial planning meeting. But number two, my spouse and I have sufficient life, disability, and long-term care insurance for our situation as it is today uh, and as it will be in the future. Yes, no, or not sure. Again, there's a lot of, life insurance is one of those real big mysteries. Do I have enough or do I have too much? And we'll be the first to tell you if you have too much insurance. I hate 
over insurance. What's the point of paying all these premiums for no real reason? I'd rather you mm. save that money, put that in kids' education, paying down a mortgage, RSPs, do something far more beneficial than that. But again, you can be an over-insured and we'll be the first to tell you that. Number three, my mortgage is affordable, but is it possible to reduce my monthly payments? Yes, no, or not sure. This is a great question because a lot of people are kind of hell-bent, I gotta get that mortgage paid off. And that's not necessarily a bad thing but it may be part of the plan. So if you if there's a way that you can maybe extend the mortgage, because if you're only paying say 3.5% on a mortgage, but you're not able to put any money away for retirement, okay, that's great that you'll pay your mortgage off early, but then you're starting flat with, with zero savings. Okay, and you might be say 40 years old, mm -hmm. but you're starting with zero savings. And it's hard to kind of get in that savings mode when you haven't built up any reserve too. So there's a psychological area with that too. So anyway, um, it's definitely a question that should be brought up. Number four, I periodically analyze my household spending and identify ways to save. Okay, I don't know too many people that actually do this, okay? Mm. It is an actually great thing to do. Those that use Quicken or uh, Microsoft Money or some of the budgeting applications and they use them religiously. And I got a few clients that do that, it's fantastic. Um, it's so easy when I go to those appointments, it's all laid out for me. Mm -hmm. okay. I think when you're, when you're young and you're starting out and you know, your, your budget is very, very, tight. uh, t tight. Mm -hmm. And so you tend to have a really good handle on, you know, month to month, exactly how much is coming yeah. in and how much is going out. And, and if we can afford to do something or can't afford to do something, I think as, as your, uh, as family grows, as your employment income grows and everything else it, it gets more complicated, all of that tends to sort of slip away mm -hmm. and you just end up having monthly expenses and you add on, add on, add yes. on as life expands without really considering, is there another way to save or what else could I drop out? Mm -hmm. And your, you know, your income goes up and kind of it's just kind of happens. Your, your expenses go up mm -hmm. and it, and you don't even know it. And a lot of these are monthly as Andrew was just mentioning, and we're going to talk about that a little later too. Um, number five, I'd have trouble finding the money to pay for a financial emergency. Yes, no, or not sure. Okay, this is generally a yes or no. Mm -hmm. And if you've got a, uh, depending on the size of the financial emergency, you should have some kind of cushion there. And I know there's uh, some data we've talked about in past shows where the average person would not be able to withstand a two-week, um, you know, income uh, expense. Mm -hmm. They would just not have enough money. If they, if they had no income for two weeks, they would be, they'd be broke. Yeah. And I've seen this situation where somebody might say, I have access to a line of credit or they might have investments that they could cash in to mm -hmm. pay for an emergency. Sure. And so then the question becomes, well, if you cash in your investments, how difficult was it for you to save that money in the first place? Mm -hmm. And how difficult is it for you going to be able to be able to replace that money that you've taken out mm -hmm. of your savings, mm -hmm. uh, your investments? So sometimes a line of credit might be the solution for that emergency because then you're more motivated to pay off that debt quickly. Right. Uh, and, and you might have to incur some interest, but it, it might be a better solution. And number six, I would have to change my lifestyle if my spouse lost their job and or pension income. I would say this is normally a yes, okay? Mm. Most people are financially dependent on each other to a certain extent. Now, there's a lot of cases where, you know, one person's got a lot of extra money and they can withstand the spouse having no income. But it doesn't say in this question how long. Uh, perhaps they can say, okay, you can have a year off, but we need you back, okay, kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> but uh, it does have an impact normally of, of your lifestyle of some sort, okay? And these are the kind of questions what kind of impact and where should you make um, you know changes in your expenses 
if there was a job loss. And those are things that, you know, certainly a planner could go through. Number seven, I worry about the loss of principal due to a stock market decline or crash. Okay. Mm. Um, kind of funny when we talk about crashes, it's, 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 it's just a great word. You know, it just feels like it just, all your money went yeah, down the tubes done. and then boom, <laughs> gone. Last time I checked, we went through a kind of a crash in 2008. And by 2010, it was kind of all kind of back together again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it all depends on what your definition of a crash is. Now, if you are, you know, if you're getting an income from your investments and the market goes down, that's one thing. And you have all your money related to the stock market. That has a major impact. But if you diversify properly, uh, a, a stock, a temporary stock market decline, and that's what they all are. They're all temporary. Mm-hmm. It should not have a massive impact on your investments if you've planned this properly with your financial planner. Number eight, I'm concerned that I will have, uh, I will not have enough um, retirement savings. Period. And again, this is all about retirement planning. That's just part of a, a financial planner we we'll go through. But again, yes, no, or not sure. This is a great little checklist to go through. Is okay. Do I have enough or not? And so many people ask me this question, but what my answer is always, what do I spend? Mm. and everybody's a little different there. Number nine, I pay too much income tax. Yes, no, not sure. Okay, um, it, you know, you, the more you make, the higher the income, the higher the tax bracket. It's not really an opinion question. I think everybody probably thinks they all pay too much income tax. Yeah, It's not about opinion, mm-hmm. but is there ways to save your income tax that legally, and you're just not taking advantage of it? And if that's the case, then you definitely are paying too much income tax. And number 10 here, I'm concerned about my estate and providing for my spouse and other beneficiaries after I'm gone. Mm-hmm. Yes, no, and not sure. And again, a great area. And I know Andy and I have had a lot of discussion about you know um, estate planning and making sure that you're not giving away 53.5% to the government. So having a proper will and having a proper plan well before the death. Because unfortunately, when, the, when there is a death, it's too late to do any planning. That's already done now. Yeah. So if you can plan this 10 years in advance so that you've whittled away a lot of the high taxed areas at lower tax rates so that when there is a death, it won't be taxed at 53.5%. Hmm. So at the end of the day, this is the kind of checklist you should go through and see where you are. Kind of give yourself a you know the kudos if you're doing a great job. It's, well, here's some areas of improvement and, and discuss this with your financial planner to make sure that you are on track on those things. But there's been a lot of discussion on savings and how poor we are at savings right now. In fact, there's a whole thing on behavioral finance. And the number one thing in trying to make yourself saving a lot of money without going to a hypnotist or anything like that, <laughs> okay? Number one is <laughs> That's just- That's a new strategy. Yeah, there's a, yeah. <laughs> they did it for smoking, they oh, did okay. it for weight loss. <laughs> you know, why not do it for savings, right? Uh, change your gratification. Um, <clears> the <throat> desire of immediate gratification overwhelms the need for a long-term plan. Hmm. Okay, so, you know, buying those new pair of shoes, I, <laughs> I got to get that new computer, I got to get that laptop, that new cell phone that just came out. That feels so great. Yeah. It seems like it feels a lot better than maybe putting that extra $100 towards your retirement plan, mm-hmm. partly because it doesn't, you don't feel like you got anything for sure. it. Sure. So this is our battle. So we, we make these decisions on short term rather than having money available for the long term. And this is, again, why pensions do so well. So what you need to do is trick yourself pay monthly. So you don't have that excess money available. Mm -hmm. So you have a pack, a pre-authorized check, or you do it through your group plan. Make sure you do that first, first of all. If there's any matching involved with the group at work, always take advantage of their matching, the company's matching. But 
you know what? If you're having it taken away monthly, say, you know, a few hundred dollars a month, mm -hmm. then you won't have that, you know, that encouragement or uh, you don't have to have need that willpower to, to uh, spend that money because you won't have the money. Yeah. Unfortunately, we are not the only ones that know this trick. Charities know this now, okay? Yeah. They want you to get it on monthly. Sure. Um, they have anything from dog, uh, there's a thing called Bark Box or Bowser Box or things, mm -hmm. and they'll give it, you know, for $40 a month, they'll be deliver dog things, treats and toys, etc. Again, what you need to do is look through all your monthly expenses, write them all down. Take yeah. that time, write them down, everything from Spotify to Netflix to Dropbox to Apple Storage, etc., and see what are you actually spending and do you, if there's any areas to cut down. You're getting $9.99 per month to death. Yeah, yeah really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hmm. And then turn around and say, okay, now we can decide how much should go to uh, our financial goals and how much should be for fun. <clears throat> We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now at 905-529-7165 or check out the website andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message, 905-529-7165, and take a peek at the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can listen to old shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Talking about behavioral finance. Yes, and, and it really is comes down to psychology and why you know certain people can become millionaires. With this, mm. And their neighbors who actually earn, say, more money than they did, they're struggling along. And mm. a lot is just what they do and the way they think about money mm -hmm. and, and, and how, you know, the importance of doing one thing over another thing. And uh, so, for example, putting money towards kids' education rather than buying big birthday gifts. Mm -hmm. Okay, that little area of uh, difference could mean, okay, I got my, my uh, kids through university, no yeah. problem at all. Or, wow, I don't know where all that money went, yeah. you know, but they bought it, they may have spent it differently. So number two in this behavioral finance is there's a magic of automatic deposits, as I mentioned to you, is just setting things automatically. And really what you need to do is get a financial planner to come down with a number that's doable. Now, it's got to be a bit of a stretch. I wouldn't say it's easy because, you know, I rarely find clients will increase the amount they want to save every month. Right. But if it, they find it tough, they will decrease it. Hmm. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend making it really tough that it's it's painful, right. but you know make it so that you can feel a little bit, okay? Yeah. And so the, the idea is to find that you have a set target and you have a purpose. For example, if you're you want to save money, you want to get your kids through university, and you want to set a goal of sixty thousand dollars for education, and it's a lot easier to do that over eighteen years than it is to just all of a sudden, oh boy. My daughter just turned 17. I better uh, see, figure out how I'm going to come up with this money. Yeah. And thankfully, <clears throat> you know, the, the RESPs, Registered Education Savings Plans, are a fantastic way to put money away, considering the government is putting away 20% to help you out. Yeah. Number three is to use only cash. Cash makes things painful. <laughs> Pulling it out of your wallet, actually yeah. seeing those dollars coming out, mm -hmm. and, and then even worse, Having to go to the bank to fill it up again. Yeah. And it, then if you happen to go to a machine, having to pay a bank fee to take the money out yeah. also makes it painful. <laughs> it just, it, it's so much more different than just throwing it into a card and it just doesn't feel that bad. Mm -hmm. um, I guess that's how, you know, the, the casinos have been using poker chips for years. Yeah. It's if, not real money. It's not real money. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's not monopoly money. Oh, yeah. If, but you actually had to pull and see your money up on the table and pile mm. it up. It would be different than poker chess, I'm sure it would. Hmm. Number four would be to make a habit of setting aside some cash. 
Now, what I look at this is, you know, if you thought like a smoker would did in the past. Now, there's a lot of people have quit smoking, which is a great thing, but whether it's coffee or smoking or some kind of vice, but right now, cigarettes cost about $12 a pack. I had to look this up. I had no idea. Mm, yeah. Okay, they're, I thought they're around 10 at most, but mm -hmm. they're $12 a pack, which is $360 a month if you're a pack a day smoker. Now, <laughs> let's say you're not a smoker. For some reason, smokers can always find a way to smoke though. Hmm. So if you weren't a smoker, that means you should be able to save this 360 a month. Pretend you're a smoker. Pretend you're a smoker. <laughs> yeah. right. Exactly. And so now you have this extra $4,320 a year that you normally would be spending on smokes. Put that away. Hmm. And let's say you do that for 18 years and you got 6%. By the 18th year, you would have had $141,000 built up in your RSP. Mm -hmm. But you would have got a tax refund if you're in a 40% bracket, kind of a slightly above average tax bracket, $1,728 per year would have been a tax refund when you could put into the RESP. Mm -hmm. And let's say you only got 5%. You didn't get six in that because you had to be a bit more conservative. And the government tops up and puts another $345 a month into that. So you'll end up with a little, almost $2,100 a year going into the RESP just from the tax refund. Mm -hmm. So you're double dipping, you're getting the refund, but then the government's matching the refund with another 20%. Right. By the time that child hits 18, funny enough, I, I said, we'll set, up a, set a goal here of 60,000 for an education plan. It works out to 61,252 at 18. And of that money, you only put in $31,000 mm -hmm. of your own money. The government put in 6,200, and then there was about a $24,000 of growth on that money. So what, you know, here's just a, a plan of simply using, call it a $12 a day plan. And you now have your kid's education paid for, you know, one child, mind you, you have 141,000, but now let's say you continue that until you're 65 for another 17, 17 years, uh, assuming you started this at 30. Mm -hmm. You now have $500,000 sitting in an RSP. 5% of that is 25,000 a year, decent pension. Mm -hmm. And that extra, that extra refund could have gone into a TFSA, that's $50,000 sitting in a TFSA also, all based on a $12, a day plan. The smokes. Hmm. It's unbelievable <laughs> what you can do with 12 bucks a day. Yeah. So it's people that say, I, I just, I don't know. I, it just seems so daunting. I don't know where, where to start. 12 bucks a day, I actually will do it. Yeah. Funny enough. Hmm. Um, now, and finally, number five here is turn the savings into a game. Now turn on those uh, reward center of your brain. And like, let's say you say, okay, I'm going to save $400 this month and you do it and you have enough. Well, give yourself a treat, you know, maybe go for breakfast with your spouse, mm -hmm. uh, maybe get those jeans you wanted, whatever it might be, but reward yourself and you it's guilt free because yeah. you actually got to your goal mm -hmm. and you're, you're giving yourself this bit of a re reward because it's a short term reward, but we do better with short term rewards than thinking about what's going to happen in 20 years from now. Mm. So that's the behavioral finance side of things. Now that's how we work with an individual, but I know there's a whole other pe lot of people that are in corporations and they got personal corporations. I know Andy has a And I wanted to, to just explore what we would, what I would call the benefits of incorporation. And, uh, and there's been a lot of changes to the rules on income splitting around corporations, et cetera. So we'll just get into some of the reasons why people would incorporate and then what the rules have changed mm -hmm. and, and how to address that as well. So the main, so when you think about incorporation, if you're running a business, you can be, you might be a professional, so it could be 
dentist, doctor, lawyer, that type of situation. You might be running your own business. Maybe it's manufacturing, maybe it's a service business. And basically you're at the point where you're generating enough money in your business that you don't need all the income. Mm -hmm. So for your lifestyle, et cetera, and your savings, as Don was talking about. And so the fact is you have money left over. Right. And so you're, and I mean, incorporation then has other benefits, uh, taxation as well. Um, the capital gains exemption, we'll talk about that income splitting and tax deferral as well. So, so in general, that individual who's got money left over, they can consider incorporating. And then if you're married and you have family, you would also include your spouse as a shareholder of your company. Mm -hmm. And so all the money that you make in your business now flows into this company and then you're going to pay taxes at the company level, and then you're going to take money out and pay yourself either a salary right. or dividends. <clears throat> and so when you're incorporated, you do have the opportunity to use the lifetime capital gains exemption, which is on the sale of your shares. So at the point where you're getting ready to sell your business, uh, you can have up to $848,252 of tax-free capital gains on the sale of the, the shares of your business. Um, in reality, most professional practices, so if you're a dentist, for example, and you've got uh, clients that are, your, uh, that are generating your income, to sell your business to another dentist isn't really practical because most most dentists recognize that, well, if I close my doors or if I switch, those those clients can go, are going to go to some other dentist, right? right? There, it's not like I'm the only shop in town. Mm -hmm. So the capacity to keep them is, is limited. Uh, so therefore, most times for professionals, the real reason that they're incorporating is to create an investment holding company. Mm -hmm. In other words, the money that didn't they didn't need on their lifestyle and spending and for business can remain in the company and it becomes a holding company where they have investments. Mm -hmm. Those investments could be stocks, bonds, mutual funds, uh, real estate, you name it. There's all kinds of things that can be held in that, that, that investment holding company. And um, so that's number one, the capital gains exemption. Number two would be income splitting. And income splitting is is has changed a lot, but this used to be one of the big motivations for people to incorporate. They right. could then sprinkle dividends between their family members, their spouse, etc. And and the government looked at this, and really the purpose of having a business, and we we have a thing called the small business deduction. So anybody who makes uh, five hundred thousand dollars or less after expenses pays a small rate of tax. And that leaves more money in their business. And the purpose of that originally was for business expansion. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of the government and the taxation rules around uh, small business corporations is that there's money left over to be able to hire somebody else. Maybe mm -hmm. you hire another staff that puts another person into the employment scenario. Mm -hmm. It might be to uh, buy uh, equipment. So that you know spurs manufacturing, continues an economic cycle as well. Um, it might be to uh, buy office furniture. It might be to expand your facilities or open up another office. So mm -hmm. you have more money left over because of this small business tax. And um, so splitting income uh, is always made sense, and it was certainly a great way to reduce your taxes. And really what's happening now 
is the rules, they looked at this in 2017, and they said they don't like the way it's generally being used right. in terms of income splitting to reduce taxes. And so in 2018, they introduced a new set of rules called TOSI, T-O-S-I, mm-hmm. and it's Tax on Split Income is what it stands for. And really what they're going after is anybody over the age of 18 now, if they're receiving dividends from your corporation, uh, they're going to be taxed at the highest marginal tax rate, uh, which would be about 47%, unless they qualify to have earned these dividends. And we'll talk about Mm -hmm. what those rules will be in a second. And they really increased or really clamped down on this group from age 18 to 24. And the reason for that was that in general, uh, a lot of times corporations were used to pay a dividend to uh, a young adult who Mm -hmm. was likely a student. Uh, They had very little other income. Uh, maybe just a summer job, but they also had tuition credits, et cetera. So they, in many cases, they ended up paying uh, very little or zero tax to receive, you know, mm-hmm. twenty or thirty thousand dollars of dividend income from a corporation. So it was certainly a good run while we, while we had it yeah. <laughs> for those that were able to take advantage of it. Um, but uh, they really clamped down on that age group, eighteen to twenty-four. So how do you get around it, and what are how can you still qualify to split income with family members? The first one is what's called a reasonable return on capital, and a reasonable return on capital means that the the uh, the, the the eighteen to twenty-four year old or your spouse, they actually put money. Uh, into buy shares of the company mm-hmm. and become an owner by making an investment of actual capital. Mm-hmm. And generally, ca- that capital has always come from, well, two, it's coming from two sources. It's either, it's an arm's length loan, so maybe the parents loaned them the money to buy it, mm-hmm. So, uh, or they went and uh, borrowed money to buy it. That's a possibility as well, a right. non-arm's length. Uh, or maybe they had capital, a windfall or something, and they did actually have the money. So if they actually had the money to buy it, um, then it's pretty much standardized rates of returns that mm-hmm. you can pay somebody. But um, in general, if it's a non-arm's length loan, it would be around 2% right. that you could pay somebody. So the amount of income splitting you can do under that set of guidelines is pretty low mm-hmm. and generally it's probably not worth the hassle. Um, The second way that you can be involved and get dividend split income still and have it qualify is if the person is actively engaged in the business. Mm -hmm. And so actively engaged in the business means that they've been working for approximately 20 hours a week in the business and uh, they've been doing that for at least... um, one year over the last five years and look, they'll look into that in terms of how many hours per week. It doesn't have to be 20 hours per week for 52 weeks. It could be 40 hours for a certain number of weeks and then zero hours for a certain number of weeks, but it has to average out. Mm -hmm. And if, if they qualify under that actively engaged in the business, then there's no limit on the dividends that can be paid Mm -hmm. because they're clearly involved in terms of contributing to the outcome and the success of the business. Mm -hmm. And then the final category that you can still income split with uh, and avoid the tossy is uh, age 65 plus. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a, um, if one individual, the professional who owns the practice or owns the business, business owner is over age 65, then when they start to take money out of this investment holding company, this corporation that they've created, then there's no limit on the dividends that can be paid to a spouse or another shareholder. Mm-hmm. So 
Uh, and that's the consistency of that was to line up with uh, income splitting rules that exist at age 65 as well. Right. So whether you have a RIF or pension income, you can split that between your spouse. And so they wanted to be consistent in that same regard with the TOSI rules. So three options there, generally actively engaged in the business or over age 65. And the over age 65 strategy might mean that you've, you know, you've set up your business, you have the investment holding company, uh, you're 60 now. You know, you're going to let it, you're either actively still uh, in the business and then waiting till 65 before you start to pay out and split income between you and your spouse Mm -hmm. at retirement. So um, that was the whole income splitting reason why people would incorporate. The other one was tax deferral. And this is um, another area where they tightened up on. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, the, the, the purpose of corporations was not to create a big, area where people could pay less tax and let money grow for retirement, it was again to expand business. So Mm -hmm. they're looking at what they call passive investment income versus business investment income and or active business investment income. And pretty much anything that if you invest through your corporation and you earn interest, you earn uh, net rental income, you earn royalties, you earn Canadian dividends, uh, the taxable portion of capital gains, foreign investment income, all of those are considered passive investments mm-hmm. and the in- interest uh, or income. And so if that passive investment income exceeds $50,000 in a given year, then that will grind down or reduce your access to the small business deduction. That small business deduction, earning uh, less than 500,000 for your corporation, you're paying roughly about 15% in, on, in, in Ontario uh, at a rate of tax. So it's a much lower rate of tax. So I wanna get into just a little, I'll talk a little bit more about um, uh, passive investments and, and how that works and some strategies around how to avoid it or reduce it. And, um, and we're really focusing in on benefits for incorporation and tax deferral. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now at 905-529-7165 and take a peek at the website andyanddon.com, andyanddon.com. All right, we're talking about the benefits of? Incorporation. Incorporating. Yeah, and um, and we're in the tax deferral area. So we talked about the three main benefits, capital gains exemption, income splitting, and tax deferral. And uh, so I'm just carrying on on tax deferral. And what we're looking at is passive investment income versus business, active business income, and how that uh, income starts to grind down your access to the small business deduction, which is the ability to earn and pay a very low rate of tax on your earnings, business earnings up to $500,000. So if you have more than $50,000 a year of passive investment income, so interest, dividends, all that stuff. So let's say roughly you had a million dollars in your investment holding account Mm -hmm. within the corporation earning 5%, there's 50 grand. The next dollar it earns, $50,001, will reduce by $5, so five times, we reduce by $5 your access to the small business deduction, that $500,000 threshold. Quite so the, Quite the penalty there. Yeah, That's it quite is. quite the ratio. <laughs> hmm. So if you... Um, 
if you had $150,000 a year, a year of, of investment income uh, through your holding company, then uh, you would have $0 access to the small business deduction and you right. would pay tax at the, at the regular rate for business income. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are the th- when you look at, um, it, it, it's a function of how much your business earns too. So um, you know, if your business income is only 50 grand, then you can earn $125,000 of passive income and still have that 50,000 only pay tax at the low rate. Mm -hmm. Um, If you make 300 grand, then you can have about 75,000 of passive income. Uh, so it, there might be a strategy as you maybe as your business begins to wind down towards retirement where your income is going down, your active business income, and so the access to that small business deduction is not as critical, but your passive income is going up, so you're still getting the benefit of all the tax deferral that mm-hmm. you set out to do. Um, so a lot of times um, the question is, should I pay myself more salary or dividends to avoid this reduction in the small business uh, deduction limit. So an example might be, let's say, um, you know, you've you've had a good year, and at the end, you, by the time you've paid all your expenses and salaries and dividends, you've got an extra 100000 sitting in your business. And you don't need it for business expansion or anything else. <clears throat> so your thought is, well, I'm just going to add that to my investment holding account in my company. So if I had a million there, now I got one million one hundred thousand. Right. But the and if that earns three percent, that hundred grand, that three thousand dollars is going to create a fifteen thousand dollar reduction in my small business deduction credit. Right. So five times the amount. And so you think, well, what if I paid myself a hundred grand more? in salary or dividends, then I don't have to worry about having that, uh, mm-hmm. having that extra uh, grind on my small business deduction. And when we re- look at the tax, because it, when you actually grind through all the numbers in this, and I'm not going to bore anybody with all the numbers, the, the answer is generally no. Uh, and it, it, it makes sense that it's still a good tax deferral, even if you are getting some small business deduction grind down. So don't, particularly if you're in a higher tax bracket, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're in a very low tax bracket, there might be an argument to do it. Uh, You'll have to work through that with your accountant and your financial planner to know for sure. But in general, um, don't get too stressed out about the small business deduction grind on this passive income. Uh, But every situation is a little bit different. So how can you reduce the small business deduction grind? Well, you can, there's some low hanging fruit things. You can repay shareholder loans. These are just simple dollar amounts, tax-free amounts that can come out of the company. And, and so therefore you're reducing that instead of having a million dollars in your investment holding account, maybe you had a shareholder loan of a hundred thousand, which meant, which means you can take a hundred grand out right away, no tax to yourself personally. And now you've only got 900,000 left in that investment account. So again, you've reduced the amount of passive income that's coming into you. Uh, Paying capital dividends, and um, capital dividends are created whenever there's a capital gain. We only pay tax on half of the amount we receive. The other half is tax-free. That half that's tax-free in a business or in your corporation creates something called the capital dividend account. And it's a notional account where they keep track of how much it is. But you can pay yourself money out tax-free that capital dividend and it doesn't have to be you don't have to use the cash but it is another way to reduce what you have in your investments mm-hmm. and, and you know a lot of small business owners have a hard time 
using money to top up their tax free savings accounts because they don't want to take mm. it out of the corporation, pay the tax on it. But when you got this law, as you said, low hanging fruit of of uh, shareholders loans, loans or the the capital dividend account, yeah. where the money is normally going to be taxed in the in the corporation and then possibly get you offside with the small business deduction. Yes. What a great opportunity to top up that tax free uh, TFSA. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the other one would be recovering what we call refundable dividend mm -hmm. tax on hand. It's a fancy accounting th system, basically paying yourself a taxable dividend. It gives you access to some other tax-free funds as well. Then when we look at your investments, that million dollars you've got sitting there, it's important to try and minimize the income that it earns. Mm -hmm. Now, it's tricky. I mean, if you have a rental property, you have all these other things, like how do you, how do you reduce the amount of income you're getting? Uh, when it comes to investments, though, there's a great opportunity to use something called corporate class. And these are uh, a group of investments or pooled mutual funds or funds that can <clears throat> minimize the amount of income generated and have it most of your return is associated with growth in the investment as opposed to income from the investment. Right. Um, and also keeping, you know, as you think about the balance of your portfolio, keeping your fixed income investments, those things that do produce interest and income, put those in your personal RRSP and keep your growth investments in your holding company investments. Mm -hmm. And finally, the only other, uh, another major strategy might be a, um, an individual pension plan, an IPP. And uh, there are lots of good reasons to use that, but you have to make sure it fits. And that's worthwhile talking to your financial planner about too. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And you can check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com, all one word. How do interest rates influence your decisions? It, yeah, your investment choices, your debt choices. You know what? Um, big announcement this week. Mm -hmm. Yes, the Bank of Canada had a, had a decision to make. Do they raise them? Yeah. Do they lower them? Or did they stay the same? And they did the last one. Yeah. They didn't move them a bit. <clears throat> okay, so it was basically a non-event. Uh, that actually caused our, our Canadian dollar to go down mm -hmm. because... You know, it, it it didn't show a good sign of what our economy is at right now. Yeah. So they kept the they kept the interest rates the same. Which from from our standpoint, it really doesn't matter what the Bank of Canada lends things out at or anything like that. What are you paying as a consumer? What what is your debt? And the prime lending rate right now is three point nine five percent. So if you're if you're say you got a line of credit on your house and you're getting prime plus a half, you'd be you would be paying four point four five percent on that debt. Still a decent you know. Fairly low uh, relative in the mm -hmm. you know a long period of time. It's a fairly low rate, but we we were getting used to like three percent, two and a half percent. Wasn't long ago, so now it's like okay, well four four and a half percent. You got to start thinking about it. And absolutely, you should. So what what does lowering? What what do they even do this? Is it just to you know drive us crazy, or is there an actual mm. sense to this? So the whole idea of lowering interest rates is to really help the economy. So going back to two thousand eight, two thousand nine our interest rates hit the all-time lows. In fact, some of the bonds in the U.S. were paying negative rates. Mm. Just to keep your money safe, they're going to charge you money. Right. They're so <laughs> scared at the time. 
And so we never got to that as Canadians, but the U.S. had got down to that, which was absolutely nuts. But anyway, so yeah, you put your money for 10 years, you got you, lo you lost half percent a year. That was wow. kind of what was going on then. A lot of s people are scared. But what it does, it allows people to borrow money at a great rate when they lower interest rates. And therefore, it stimulates the economy, making more money available for purchasing and investing. Mm -hmm. So it helps the stock market. All of a sudden, you have excess money. So now you're putting money into your RSPs. You're buying investments. So that helps the stock market. Also, as we've seen, particularly around here, you know, the real estate prices. Yeah. How they boomed, just went berserk. And that wasn't really the point to make them unattainable, to have them go up that fast. But when there's excess money, that's the, one of the first things that go. People love real estate. They can see it. They can touch it mm. and say, well, you know, with interest rates this low, I can afford this much more house. Yeah. Because my, they look at the payments rather than what the interest rate is. Right. So how much is my monthly payment that I can afford? And this is where the government got in involved and said, okay, you have to qualify for a different five-year rate than what the real five-year rate, rate mm -hmm. is. So you have to qualify for about the five-year rate plus two. Mm-hmm. So if the five-year rate currently is about 4%, you have to qualify for 6%. And so that was to kind of put a lid on the real estate market just a bit, yeah. okay? And, and, and good, good on them because if you were getting a, you know, a five-year rate at 2.5% and now it, it comes up for renewal at 4.5%, mm. that is that you, you better be prepared financially for that. They make a big difference for you. So what happens when they lower interest rates? Bonds actually go up. So people actually look for longer period investments because why would I buy these short-term investments paying half percent when I can get a, a longer-term, say a five-year GIC at one and a half mm -hmm. or a long-term bond, uh, Government Canada bond, say at two and a half. So it does put, take money towards those areas. Also what happens is interest-sensitive stocks go up. And probably the best idea of an interest-sensitive stock would be, say, the banks. Right. Okay, Royal Bank or any of the banks pay a fairly high dividend. So if they're paying, say, a 4% dividend and interest rates are only 2%, so well, that's pretty good. I can withstand the low risk of the stocks because I'm getting double the interest rate. Well, if interest rates go up and then all of a sudden they're still only paying a 4% dividend, well, now the, the guaranteed rate is 3%. Right. So, wow, I don't know if I should really get that bank stock. It's only 1% better than the going rate. So this is where you saw last year as interest rates went up, interest-sensitive stocks actually went down. Right. Okay, not, not to mention the stock market went down, but they had a bit of a double whammy. Mm. They're interest-sensitive plus the market went down. And that gets me on to why they increase interest rates. And it's generally to reduce the amount of money in circulation. Mm -hmm. And really, the main focus is to keep inflation low. Right. They're worried about, you know, inflation going crazy. And it does help the economy. It gets... You know, people, companies expand mm -hmm. because they can hire more people, they can get a building, they can expand their product. But what it does also, it does, f you know, fan the flames of the fire of inflation. And that's what they're worried about. So there was this concern that the economy was doing very well. It wasn't long ago, that was only say six months ago. And they had to keep increasing interest rates. All of a sudden, there's been a lot of political drama, as we all know, generally started south of the border. Mm -hmm. And it started to seep through with tariffs and perhaps we're a lot more uncertainties in, in which way the economy is going. Sure. So that's why this week they did not raise interest rates. So when they increase interest rates and make borrowing more expensive, it therefore decreases um, amount of money people have in their pocket and therefore it slows the economy down. Also, it actually slows down the companies and how much more people they can hire. 
So it's in in home prices. Now we've seen that just recently, mm-hmm. um, in just uh, this past week, we saw detached homes in the GTA have dropped about two and a half percent. Okay. Now condos and and semi-attached have actually done very well. Semi-attached actually did the best in the last little period, and that's again based on how much they can afford. There's they're usually a little less expensive. So the idea is, you know, interest rates, you can bang your head against the wall trying to determine which way they're going up or down. At the end of the day, you really should be talking to your financial planner saying, okay, if you have a mortgage, should you get a variable rate mortgage or should you get a fixed? It really comes down to how much uncertainty can you withstand? Mm-hmm. Because right now, say a variable mortgage is prime less 0.6. Right. So that would be about a 3.35% mortgage. Well, you could probably get a 3.5% five-year mortgage right now. Right. So do you want a 3.5% guaranteed for the next five years or a 335 with variability? We're not sure which, in- rate, which way the rates will go. And that's the question, and you really have to look really closely at your situation. How much flexibility can you afford? We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and, uh, and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. We'll Thanks. see you next Happy week. Happy Daylight Bye. Savings.